Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, I feel like it's uh, been a little while. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I, I've got to tell you, it seems like uh, you've been just a tad bit busy on your end. I mean, I, I, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I, I'm floored by the amount of content Betify is now kicking out. I, I don't know how you guys are doing it. It uh, it definitely keeps us on our toes. We're upwards of 40 or 50 pieces of content a day. It's, it's, uh, it's fun. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's amazing. All right. So the single stock ETFs, we saw the first eight products launch last week from uh, Axis Investments, that included a Tesla Bear ETF, an inverse Tesla ETF, ticker TSLQ. There were uh, two times leverage and inverse Nike and Pfizer ETFs, and then uh, lesser leverage versions of PayPal and NVIDIA. What were your initial thoughts on uh, seeing these approved? <laughs> well, yes, right. So, so this approval on first glance is kind of bonkers, but... Let's put things into perspective here, right? Because the truly bonkers thing is that it's not as bonkers as it could have been. So products like these have been trading for quite some time in Europe. Uh, there's a 3X Tesla ETP that I'm aware of. I, I think it's one of, if not the most actively traded fund in Europe. There's also a 5X leveraged product on the queues and so on. So uh, single stock ETPs have existed in a much smaller market by volume and assets than the U.S., and they haven't broken that market yet. So I'm not convinced they're going to make a huge splash in our ocean, so to speak. Um, there's one or two, like you mentioned, TSLQ, uh, that have seen some decent volume, but the rest have been fairly quiet. So um, I also uh, think we should probably keep perspective on the magnitude of the leverage that we're talking here. So uh, we're not looking at 3x Tesla ETPs. Uh, that um, bullish NVIDIA and ETP that got approved, that's only uh, 1.25 times the the inverse uh, daily performance of NVIDIA. The bear fund is just straight inverse exposure with no levered element on top of it. I mean, there are some 2X ones, but Axis, uh, the Axis Investments, the in, uh, issuer behind these funds, asked the SEC for 2X and inverse 2X on all the products, but the SEC didn't go for it. They only allowed these um, reduced versions. So, what this tells me is that the uh, SEC is factoring in the volatility of the underlying stock into its decision-making process. Tesla is more volatile than Nike, right? So it's allowed a, a smaller leverage factor. But look, if you ask me, is there going to be appetite for these products? Yes, I think that's proven out. But that demand, that appetite is going to be probably limited to a very small subset of what comes out. And that subset is going to include rock star, headline moving stocks, the Teslas, and so on. Um, take a look at, for example, uh, SARC and TARC. Uh, those are the leveraged ETFs on ARKK. And they are just doing incredible volume on a daily basis. TARC's doing like 40 million daily. I think SARC is up to 200 million or something. But that's happening because of the the popularity and the volatility of the underlying security, ARKK, right? So when you have a volatile security, then inverse and leveraged exposure is going to make meaningful and attractive trends for investors. But could you do like an inverse version of, I don't know, American Century Fund and have it do that kind of daily volume? 
I don't know. It's kind of not the point of an American century fund, right? So I think there's probably some possibility of investors using these as trading tools, as a way to, I don't know, express a view on earnings or something, or to play market shocks or so on. Um, I could also see them being conceivably used as a tax loss harvesting tool, right? You could you know move from one security into these securities or something. But I, 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 to be honest, I don't anticipate the vast majority of them ever becoming anything more than just small niche play. And I certainly don't see them as market, potentially market breaking investments, no more than any other leveraged or inverse ETF is. Okay, so there are several things that you just touched on there that I want to try to dive a little uh, deeper on, if, if, if we may. Uh, and mm-hmm. you, you talked about the decision making process with the SEC and and. The, uh, the amount of leverage on some of these ETFs. Uh, l- l- let me try to set this up. So um, Dave and I discussed this a little bit last week. But, Laura, from my standpoint, um, it- it's a little amazing the SEC let these products come to market. I mean, you, you look at some of the comments. So <clears throat> SEC Commissioner Crenshaw, I would say, basically ripped these products to shreds last week in a statement <laughs> she put out. She said financial advisors would likely be breaching their fiduciary obligation by using these. Uh, There was also a Mm -hmm. statement from Lori Schock with the SEC's Office of Investor Education and Advocacy. She talked about the uh, unique risk factors associated with these products. Even uh, SEC Chair Gary Gensler, uh, I saw the quote in Bloomberg, he said these products present particular risk. And so I'm reading all of this and I'm wondering, well, why did the SEC approve these then? Now, I'm not the regulatory expert, so my question to you is, uh, was there simply no choice here by the SEC? Like, did issuers just run these things through the ETF rule and and they were allowed to come to market, or is there more here? I feel like if the SEC had those types of concerns, if they want to, at the end of the day, they can stop whatever from coming to market. So there is and there isn't. to, I know that's a very unsatisfying <laughs> uh, answer, but there was and there wasn't a way for the SEC to uh, stop these pl- these um, products from coming to market. So um, Crenshaw did say in her statement that these funds came to market under the ETF rule, and that's absolutely true, right? There's to that extent they couldn't stop it. Um, so so what does that mean precisely? What what did the ETF rule do that allowed these these products to come to market? So. Um, every exchange decides what securities can be listed on their exchange through what's called listing standards. That's like the rule book for listing security. And there are what's called generic listing standards that apply to every security that's going to list on the exchange. And then there are specific standards uh, that apply to special or edge cases like complex products. So prior to the ETF rule being passed, and that's 6011, um, ETFs were exceptions to the SEC's rules. They only existed because you had to go out and get a special exempt of relief. That meant they fell under the individual listing, that specific listing criteria at the exchanges. And so the exchanges would have to file a rule change with the SEC in order to, to be able to list them. So under that old regime, single stock ETF comes to you know, an exchange. The SEC could have said no to that rule change and the funds wouldn't have been able to list. They wouldn't have been able to meet the criteria. But then 6C11 passes, and the ETF rule sets a generic listing standard, applies for every ETF that meets its criteria, and that automatically approves them to be listed. It 
just takes them out of the SEC's pipeline, even if other forms of that exposure wouldn't have made it past the generic listing in like a different vehicle or whatever, uh, or if the ETFs themselves wouldn't have been approved in the original relief area. So to that extent, the SEC didn't have a choice. They kind of had to, the floodgates are open, right? So things are going to go through. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some things they could have done, right? So they did pull a little, a little on the levers, right? Because Access had applied, like I said, for greater leverage than they ended up getting. And uh, reducing the leverage isn't the same thing as stopping products from coming to market. But, uh, you know, it is a little bit of a, a twist. And look, the SEC knew these products were coming for some time. They did have options. Uh, Crenshaw explicitly said in her statement that the SEC, quote, failed to make use of the tools it does have, such as rulemaking ability, meaning the commission could have just gone out and made a rule that would have prevented these funds from coming to market. Now, there's uh, there just wasn't enough interest in the commission to pursue that line. I have a suspicion as to why. Um, so we had seen Gensler, Crenshaw, and Allison Heron-Lee, who was a former commissioner, all put out statements over the past year saying that they supported rulemaking for complex products. They wanted to see uh, investor protections around leveraged and inverse products and so on. That would have been a majority on the commission. Presumably, they could have done something. They could have put out a rule. But Lee actually left the SEC in April. Her replacement didn't take office until just yesterday, meaning there was a gap on the commission. And that majority on the commission in favor of rulemaking was no longer in place. So Gensler may not have just, he may not have had the votes in that window of time when the this particular proposal was before them. It's so interesting. I mean, again, I just can't recall seeing really any product come to market with that much uh, sort of dissent from the SEC. Uh, the comments yeah. last week just really caught my attention. I mean, to have these statements put out publicly that were uh, pretty blunt on the types of risks that these products pose. Now, you know, all that said, look, I, I'm the I'm the guy that's been uh, beating the table on uh, uh, that, that we should have a spot Bitcoin ETF approved. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to be contradictory here. At the end of the day, I think investors have a responsibility to do their homework and understand whatever they're investing in. So if the SEC wants to allow these products to be available on the market, I'm fine with it. You, you know, my issue always comes down to consistency here. And yeah. It, and don't forget, we had the the FINRA proposal too a few uh, short months ago that would have done some of the you know thrown up roadblocks for in retail investors trying to access these products, these leverage inverse products. It is possible the SEC was kind of counting on FINRA to put the ban hammer uh, down. There were some references made to that effort in some of the public statements the SEC made. Um, so it, it may have just uh, gotten the wires crossed there. Who knows? So in terms of demand and what we might see from the market moving forward, I think you're right in that some of these products are going to find a real audience. I think we're already seeing that with the inverse Tesla ETF. Some of the other products, especially around stocks that maybe aren't quite as volatile or don't have the cachet, uh, the, the company cachet, they're probably not going to do as well. But Bloomberg had a, a piece over the weekend where they uh, noted that there are another 85 single stock ETFs in the hopper with the oh SEC. And you start looking at this. I mean, I look at some of the filings last week. There are now single stock covered call ETFs. Uh, of course, we have leverage and inverse. I mean, I could I don't want to be extremist here, but I could see a scenario where we have like a thousand of these things launch or 2000. I mean, we could see ETFs go from 3000 to 4000 in the span of the year or 3000 to 5000 because you 
think about how many individual stocks are out there and then the different strategies you can put around the, those stocks. Um, I, I guess I'm just curious. I mean, what do you what do you foresee happening here? I, and again, I agree that demand's going to be pretty confined to certain products, but that's not going to stop ETF issuers from trying to launch them. I, I absolutely agree. We are. It is very conceivable we could see 3,000, 5,000 products launching, and then we'll see 3,000 or 5,000 products closing, right? <laughs> like if you're, if you're not gathering assets, it's not um, like running an ETF isn't a charity. It costs you money and, and you have to have a certain amount of assets in it to break even and to make it uh, worth your while to have that ETF open. So uh, you know, you don't want to just sit there with an ETF that's got two million in in assets forever uh, just to keep it out there. It's, it doesn't make sense for an issuer to do that. So, I think we are going to see a lot of products come to market. Every single Fang stock, every meme stock. I think I saw a Tilray uh, was in one of the filings, and there's just going to be a torrent of these funds, and maybe one or two might stick around and be popular, and then. All the rest are probably going to close because there's just not going to be, in my opinion, enough of a sustainable demand and sustainable volume, trading volume to keep these funds healthy and alive. I want to move on here, but I mentioned this to uh, to Dave last week. One thing I do worry about with these is just investor confusion around the ticker symbols, uh, because if you look at the the eight products that launched last week, those tickers are pretty similar to the underlying stock. You know, it's like one letter that's different on there. And I, I can just see a scenario where a retail investor goes into their E-Trade account and is intending to, say, buy Tesla Direct or NVIDIA and, you know, punches in the wrong ticker symbol and gets something else. Now, again, that's that's ultimately the responsibility of the investor. There's only so much you can do. But, you know, imagine a scenario where you have five or six or ten different iterations of uh, a NVIDIA uh, single stock ETF for Tesla, you could see some confusion in the marketplace. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. We do have some precedent for that. We have a, a number of um, iterations on BND or AGG, right? You, you go look up AGG, there's a, a huge number of AGG plus another letter uh, that pops up. Same with BND. So um, yeah, I think investors are probably going to have to be careful. Uh, and that is a concern for sure. All right, let's briefly hit on two uh, unrelated topics. And the first mm-hmm. one I have for you is currency hedged ETF. So you may have seen this. I tweeted out a chart last week that uh, I, I said, look, this is not the most exciting chart, but I think it could be in running for chart of the year when it's all said and done. And it was a chart of the euro and showed it hitting parity with the U.S. dollar. And you look at the dollar strength this year. That's a real problem for international stocks, right? It's a drag. Uh, on returns for U.S. investors. And of course, the underlying stocks aren't doing so hot themselves, but you add in the, the currency headwind and it, you know that, it makes things really difficult. Do you think we could see a comeback from currency hedged ETFs? I mean, can they recapture that magic from back in, uh, what, what, 2014, 2015? <laughs> I actually think we're already seeing a comeback for currency hedged uh, products because as you said, um, international stocks are not doing very well. Um, they're performance is tanking and you know what you're, you should do when performance tanks is buy the dip, right? Buy in. That way you can ride the rally. But the problem is you have that currency headwind uh, facing you. So uh, with the euro hitting parity with the dollar, uh, we see the same thing in Japan. The yen's basically exploding over the last couple of months. Uh, a lot of resurgent interest 
research interest on our site in currency hedging as an access point to allow people to stay invested in various international markets without taking that hit to your returns um, from a you know tanking local foreign currencies. So um, we've also seen specifically uh, small cap currency hedged small caps funds uh, kind of take off in engagement and research. I thought that was very interesting. That, um, but it speaks to that desire to get return and uh, from international markets because you know small caps tend to um, be riskier, but those risks tend to pay off, right? So uh, I, I just think that is an interesting angle that folks are looking more and more for currency hedged uh, small caps ETFs like DDLS in the Wisdom Tree Suite, DXJS in the wis- also in the Wisdom Tree Suite. Um, and it's just, you know, I'm keeping my eyes on the flows there. I think the story is very much in development and, uh, you know, investors are seeing that these can be a very attractive way. Uh, currency hedged products can be a very attractive way to stay invested in a core allocation when the market itself is being challenged from a currency perspective. Yeah. I'll just always remember back in again, like 2013, 2014, 2015, <laughs> the flows into a DXJ, right? An HEDJ. I mean, they were unbelievable. Th- those products took yeah, in billions were. of dollars and then they did sort of fade. Uh, so it- it'll be interesting to see if those can make a comeback. Okay. Just a couple minutes left here. I want you to help set up my conversation with a Phil Huber on alternative investment. So I'll, I'll just ask you, I mean, this has been a big story in the year this uh, thus far. You have stocks down, you know, worst start to a year since 1970. You have broad bonds down, worst start ever. And so I think you do have a lot of advisors and investors looking to alts. I mean, any alt ETF standing out to you this year? Any thoughts on the, the alt space overall? You know, it's so interesting you asked me this question because we've seen in some of our recent polling that alts as a strategy have been... Um, more attractive to advisors who are looking to provide income for their clients. Uh, you know, uh, up until this point, commodities and actually through this point, commodities remain the the most attractive uh, way to kind of step outside the sixty forty box. But alts are growing in interest level and and attractiveness. So I think when we look back on twenty twenty two, or at least the first half of it, anyway. We're going to see it as uh, the year of alts. And um, one thing that really stands out to me is uh, actually managed futures. So I feel like everybody's kind of waking up to these strategies, the managed futures strategy at the same time. You're seeing Crane Shares as KMLM. Uh, this was a sleepy, tiny little fund a few months ago with barely 10 million in assets. Now, suddenly, it's taken in 130 million to date. Um, you look at IMGP and Dynamic Beta's uh, managed future funds. That's a uh, D, ticker DBMF, that's taken in $340 million year to date. So I think if you're looking for that sort of blended futures exposure, an alternative hedge fund-like exposure, but you don't want to do all the hard active work of picking out those positions, managing it yourself, and you know it's, it's not easy to be invested in futures markets, uh, you know, a managed futures ETF makes a lot of, lot of sense. It's convenient. It's fast. It's cheaper. It's, it's just easy. So we actually have a whole channel on our site dedicated to managed futures. If you encourage people to go look it out, um, there's a lot of great educational resources out there for those who are looking to learn about this and any alternative strategy. Like there's so much good stuff out there now. Well, this is a space I'm I'm just fascinated to watch moving forward because I think, look, we all know the story. I'm going to talk about this a little bit with Phil that alts really as a whole did not work over the past decade plus. 
And I, you know, I remember in 2017, 2018, 2019, everybody's saying, I think I said it, hey, this will be the year for alternative investments and it never really happened. But it does seem like we have a shifting market regime. We'll, we'll see if that you know, stays intact longer term. But you could really see a scenario where the alt ETF category takes off. So I, I'm just interested to watch that space. But Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. Great having you back on the podcast. Excellent stuff as always. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure as always. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify.